Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. On today's Outdoor Explorer, my guest is Hank Linfer. His book, Raven's Witness, The Alaska Life of Richard K. Nelson, won the 2020 Banff Mountain Book Grand Prize after winning Best in Mountain Literature. The distinctive opening to Richard Nelson's public radio show, Encounters, was an easily recognizable signal that you were about to take a journey into the sound of Alaska. Richard's Alaska life spanned across the state, from the North Slope to the interior to Southeast. He immersed himself in village life and native culture and spent his life studying the relationships between people and nature. Richard died in 2019, but he lives on through his influential radio and written work. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. Joining me today to talk about the life of Richard K. Nelson is the author of the book, Raven's Witness, The Alaska Life of Richard K. Nelson. Hank Linfer, thanks for being here, Hank. Happy to be here, Lisa. And you're joining me from Juneau today. I am. And I think it's um, uh, really uh, kind of this, this morning I read this article in the paper about how we need to act soon on our interaction with nature. And so I thought it's, or we're because we're destroying our planet. And I thought how appropriate it is that we're talking about today, someone like Richard Nelson, who was so important to that kind of integration between people and nature. Um, And most Alaskans are probably gonna recognize him um, if they were listening to Alaska Public Media you know, five years ago, a little bit more, he had that very distinctive, happy voice. He had such a happy, smiley voice. And then his program was called Encounters and it would always be the sound of a didgeridoo in the beginning, right? Yes, it would, yeah. Yeah, it was very distinctive. I wanna talk a little bit about that since it was mostly an Alaska program and he had this Australian instrument in there because I know he also had a fascination with the desert. So, Um, and then he ended up in the Arctic desert, I guess. (laughs) Yep. So first of all, let's start with just talking about you a little bit, like where you're from, how you ended up in Alaska, and how you met Richard. Well, I ended up uh, in Alaska by virtue of being born here. I was born in Anchorage and moved up to uh, Barrow uh, when I was six months old. My father was a polar bear biologist. My mother was a nurse in the hospital there. So all my early memories are rooted up there um, alongside the uh, Chukchi Sea. Uh, a few years back in Anchorage, and then dad switched from polar bears to brown bears, which brought us down here to the rainforest. So high school in Juneau. Um, and during those high school years, I fell in love with Glacier Bay, not too far from Juneau. Um, built a home in Gustavus so I could be close to Glacier Bay when I was 23. So I, I was uh, pretty early on, knew where I wanted to spend the rest of my life, and, and that continues to be my home base. I first met Richard, like so many people, on the page um, before his radio work. I was uh, reading his books, and we were both involved in conservation work. So I actually met him in person on a really fun trip where a group of us from Northern Southeast uh, met up with a group of people from Sitka where Richard lived. And we hiked from two different water bodies uh, and and met um, by a lake uh, to map stands of giants, old growth trees. So I met him in the woods and that was the beginning of a friendship that spanned the next uh, 25 years. Wow. 
we, you and I were talking right before we started this and just talking about how Alaska is so connected and it's so easy to become, to meet people like Richard that have such a big impact on the, the broader world really. And certainly the impact on Alaska that he's had. Yeah. Yep. So it we, does. I, yeah. I think we're pretty, pretty lucky to be here. I'm a fellow born in, in Anchorage person. So, <laughs> and I'm, I'm so glad and thankful of that. Um, so uh, let's start with uh, Richard's early life because he was not born in Alaska. And um, I found it really fascinating, not just what he was interested in early on and that he ended up in Alaska, but also that he also had kind of a difficulty in the education system. He did. Um, I think it's uh, wonderful and mirrors a little bit of my own trajectory through, uh, through schooling that this guy barely passed English in high school. You know, he was rocking a C, a D, and an F. And the guy goes on to become Alaska's state writer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just love that story. It, um, uh, and I, I share bits of that with anybody who's struggling with school. And it's, it's not a reflection of anybody's intelligence. It's a reflection of people's learning styles. Mm -hmm. And Richard, as a kid, was just intensely curious, but not about anything that was being offered to him in the classroom. He was uh, curious about the natural world. His, um, turns out his father was asthmatic, so furred creature, uh, creatures weren't an option to him. He couldn't bring home uh, furry animals or feathered animals. So he turned to snakes and lizards and turtles and brought him home. Um, his parents tolerated it. He ended up filling the garage in his house in Madison, Wisconsin, to the point where his parents couldn't use it anymore. Uh, <laughs> Listening and, to him as an adult, that seems like something he would do as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and being in Alaska was an odd turn for a guy in love with snakes. Um, but he had an invitation to come to Alaska to do field, summer field work in Kodiak in 1962. And he had talked to fellow um, classmates there on campus at the Madison College. And they told him, hey, this is a great adventure. You can't pass it up. So he went and he realized, yeah, there is a lot of adventure to be had up in Alaska. So at uh, his love of adventure, um, ended up trumping his love of snakes. <laughs> yeah, because he's not going to find any snakes up here. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so he came, so then he, when he, after he came up, he ended up in an Arctic village after he Kodiak, did. right? He went he to did. Kodiak first? He went to Kodiak just for a summer trip. He did another uh, summer trip out to the Aleutians to help with an archaeological dig. Um, and he was, as an undergraduate, he was focused on getting a degree in zoology. And he realized, uh oh, I got to pass a couple of math classes and some chemistry classes. And that really wasn't in the cards for him. Um, and he figured out anthropology didn't involve those classes. Uh, and then he figured out that anthropology was really the study of people who knew about the natural world. So it was a way for him to pursue his innate fascination with the natural world 
by learning about and from people that knew it far more intimately than he did. So when the, when the invitation came from his major professor to go to Wainwright in 1964, and his uh, professor was Professor Laughlin, who, was, um, who had studied um, Inuit people. And so the United States Air Force approached this professor because they were interested in writing a survival manual for pilots flying missions over the Arctic. Uh, and Professor Laughlin says, well, you know, you, we might as well learn from the world's experts, which are mm -hmm. the folks that, have, that live there. And he offered this young kid the job. And he was, Richard at the time, had just got his undergraduate degree and was offered the chance to go spend the winter in Wainwright, and he took it. He really had a sense of adventure, didn't he? He did. Um, and it's so different when I think, uh, you know, when I think about kids uh, leaving home after high school now, which my daughter is about to do, uh, and we're just in touch. There's FaceTime and texting right. and all these things. So Richard took off. Uh, there was no phones. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, we'll see you when you get back. Yeah, and and that is just so hard to understand nowadays. It is, and he was he was 22 years old. Yeah, I just think that's amazing. Um, and he uh, he was a Madison boy. He was a Green Bay Packers fan, as uh, almost all young people were in Madison. And his mom made him cookies and bought him warm socks. And his dad placed a microphone in front of the television and recorded the broadcasts of the Green Bay Packers games. And they packaged these care packages it up and shipped them up to the Arctic. And Richard ate all the stale cookies and listened to the games over and over in his little one-room house. And he was intensely homesick. Oh. And, then, and then he uh, fed those reel-to-reel -reel tapes into his own recorder and recorded letters home. Mm -hmm. And uh, his parents were pack rats. They saved them all. And when his parents died, Richard found them. He took them to his house in Sitka. Um, he'd never listened to them. They're reel to reel. Who's got a reel to reel machine? So I took them to the state museum and got them digitized and listened to these stories, uh, you know, coming into the headphones over 50 years after these stories were told. It was really fun. What, what was one of your favorite stories from that time, from 50 years ago? Oh, there's this wonderful story of Richard. Um, rushing back from a successful caribou hunt and and this is an urban kid you got to remember I mean he's he didn't even own as much as a slingshot growing up and here he is with his own dog team um, going out and hunting now and he comes racing back to his little house uh, and there is a dedication to a new church in town that he wants to be a part of and He's, he's got to wrestle this caribou off his sled and get it up out of um, up above where the dogs can chew on it. He grabs his hymn book, runs into the church. And, um, and this, uh, uh, this is a recording of his experience in the church as, as that blood defrosts off his parker. After the song was over, I closed the hymn book and looked at it and it was covered with blood. And I realized that my pants, both of my thighs on my legs, were just covered with blood, just soaked with blood from that caribou. 
And uh, then I inspected myself a little more. I saw I had blood all over the front of my coat and blood all over my shoes, and the floor was covered with blood where I was sitting. And uh, Ecock looked over at me, the man I was sitting next to, this old fellow, looked at me, and so I had blood on me, and he smiled just as to say, ah, good, you got caribou. Uh, I think one of the things about Richard that I don't know, maybe was different um, even today is kind of that looking at it from as an anthropologist, looking at it from the natural world, world part of it and not coming into a community with a lot of assumptions of how people should be or what they were or anything. I mean, he was just he was just there not even to observe, really, but to be part of their lives. Is that is that unusual for anthropologists? I mean. When they go into, at least back then in the 60s, maybe it was a little bit more like like colonialism or, you know, white people coming into somebody else's space and kind of having these assumptions or anything. Was he different that way, do you think? I mean, it seems he just came in with a lot more empathy and just willingness to learn from them instead of him teaching them something. Yes, he uh, he he definitely viewed himself um, in as a student, and uh, maybe what really distinguished him as an anthropologist was his willingness to fully participate in the lifestyle and the activities. And you know, as he, as he described it to me, um, you can have somebody else describe you how to ride a bike and what it takes to balance and you can meticulously take notes but until you get up on that bike and learn to balance yourself you'll never fully understand the activity mm -hmm. and so that was true to a much greater degree with all the um, intricacy involved in hunting and understanding how to move across thin ice and uh, how to scratch the ice to make a curious seal come closer and all these things that you actually cannot learn through simple observation um, or description. You have to participate in it yourself. So he, he um, learned that early on, um, as I mentioned, he had a dog team, you know, at age 22 and a rifle and um, he just went out with these guys and he, he had to feed himself, he had to feed his dogs. Uh, so, it was more than just a professional interest. He um, he was kind of required to do it. Mm -hmm. So let me remind everybody that this is Outdoor Explorer on KSKA FM 91.1, and I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My guest today is Hank Linford, who is the author of the book, Raven's Witness, The Alaska Life of Richard K. Nelson. And so we're learning all about Richard's early life right now in Alaska, which is just fascinating in the 60s um, when even... My, my parents arrived in 1963 to Anchorage, and it was pretty rough in Anchorage in 1963, and can't imagine what it was like in, in villages was completely different, too, and the amount of communication you had with the outside world was really limited. Um, one of the other, uh, I mean, there's so many fascinating things about him, but he learned to speak the language, too, as, and he had never had any language training before that, had he? I mean, he hadn't, he didn't know any other language besides besides English when he came up here. Is that that's right? True. That, that's true. Um, there was a school teacher in Wainwright in 1964, a guy by the name of Ray Bain, who's, who, um, 
who had his own amazing trajectory through the state and is still alive and in Hawaii. But uh, I interviewed uh, Ray, who had been there for three years, and he said uh, Richard learned more of the language in three months than Ray had in three years. And he was just a gifted linguist. His ear um, picked up subtleties that few of us can do. Um, and, and if he hadn't been an anthropologist, uh, he would have been a musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, and he, he shared that with me, but, and he had that kind of ear. Um, it, it was like a, almost a, a perfect pitch ear in terms of language. And, and I witnessed that um, in our recording work we did together in his ability to distinguish um, between warblers, which are notoriously hard to tease out um, just by their song. And the these bird songs that just sounded so similar to my ear were just distinct uh, in his. Uh, and so that gift served him well in uh, learning Anupiak and then later uh, learning uh, the Koyakon language when mm-hmm. he lived in Huslia. Mm-hmm. I have a friend from high school who's, he came to Anchorage for high school, he's Koyakon. And he like had always talked about Richard Nelson and had about the huge respect that the Koyakon people have for Richard Nelson. I mean, he really made an impact there as well. Yes, and and uh, I rich I wish Richard were alive to hear that story because there is there would be no more satisfying uh, feedback than something like that. And that when it if Richard said that if he could only leave one thing behind, one book, one radio program, it would be "Make Prayers to the Raven," which is an ethnography about the Koyakon. Uh, culture. Um, and the audience he had in mind in writing the book was your friend. Okay. <laughs> um, so there was, he arrived it, um, there in the 70s. And, you know, according to his main teachers, uh, the Atlas, Catherine Atla and Stephen Atla, you know, there was a break in the history of oral tradition. And Catherine pulled him aside and said, um, I'm asking you to write this down. And it was a risk Catherine was willing to take to try out writing down what had been an oral tradition. Um, and so it was, it was Catherine, Catherine's desire and Richard's desire to write this down, to pass it on to future generations. Mm-hmm. So that kind of feedback is, uh, w- would have been so cherished by Richard. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I mean, my friend, that, w- that was really an impactful work for him. And he's, um, let's see, so he was born 1967. So he was probably maybe six or eight or 10 when Richard was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he, he has those memories. So in that, and he's, he's a culture bearer for sure. So I think it probably had an impact in that way too, that his culture is important to him and he's going to share that with other people and keep it alive. So Richard definitely played a role in that, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's fantastic. Great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he was, uh, so he was in, um, oh, he had another very important friend in Wainwright, uh, uh, Tagrook. Did yep, I say Tagrook, that right? Bod, Tagrook? Yep, Tagrook Bodfish. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and Tagrook, and Tagrook had a, 
Go ahead. Uh, uh, Tagric was just a couple years older, but was his immediate neighbor. And they just became fast friends. And and uh, Tagric spent most every evening, a part of most every evening in uh, Richard's house. And uh, he just loved sharing things. He, um, he helped him learn the language. They made flashcards to help him learn the words. And they... Um, they built the, the tools he needed to hunt and navigate safely on the ice, and they teased each other. And uh, yeah, it was just a wonderful. He had a friendship. nickname for him. Uh, well, his his Anupiak name was Niglik, which means uh, uh, Brant Goose. And Tagruk uh, made up um, a little song, which was. Uh, which had a little barb to it. It was, it was a little bit of teasing, <laughs> but the translation of the song is the Brant goose speaks in English, but the white man doesn't understand. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you can hear the barb in there. It's like, yep. come on. I mean, how stupid can you be? You, you know, you, you don't get it. And, and that song had such an impact on Richard um, that really right up until the end of his life, the, um, the last time I sat with him, a couple months before he died, I actually recorded Richard reflecting back on that song, oh. on Tagaric singing it in his house in 1964. And after all those years, he really came to view it as an invitation. Mm -hmm. Say, look, you don't get it, but I think you're smart enough that you can. And mm -hmm. I want to show you. Uh, I want to show you... Um, a bit of how I see the world. Come on, let's go take a look. So I sat with Richard, you know, a couple months before he died. And here's a bit in Richard's own voice reflecting on the significance of that song and actually singing a song, which was just tattooed into his mind after all those decades. And Richard and I um, made a trip back to Wainwright in 2014, exactly 50 years after he first went there and met Tagaruk. And Richard at first didn't want to go because he knew the village would have changed so much. He didn't, he, uh, he didn't want to kind of pollute his memories. He, he, he cherished his memories so much. Uh, but I, uh, I made a few calls and I, uh, I got in touch of, with Tagaruk's daughter, figured out that Tagaruk was alive and very eager to see his old friend Nigalik. And when I told Richard that, hey, Nick Tagrick wants to see you, he said, okay, let's go. So we did. We, uh, we traveled all the way up there. And it was a magical five days. And we spent a good chunk of each of those days in Tagrick's, uh, around Tagrick's uh, kitchen table. And I just sat there telling stories. Um, and on the last day, we asked if it would be okay if I turned a recorder on. and. Here's, um, and Richard asked him to sing that song, and, and here's a recording of it. I want to know the words for that song the right way. That little song, that little Negalik song? Yeah. Can you? Hey, that's the one. Yeah. I love that song. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I always thought of him singing that song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you have so much enthusiasm about him. It like kind of takes my breath away a little bit because I mean, I always really, really loved listening to him on the, on the radio and it just always made me feel good whenever I heard him because he just seemed like such a kind person. And he wasn't a, I, I think re reading the book, he wasn't really a religious person, but he definitely had this spirituality that was connected to the land and the people of Alaska. I mean, he, he was really a advocate. He was. Um, I mean, he grew up Lutheran. You know, his mom was heartbroken when he started to drift away from that tradition. All mothers are heartbroken when we drift away from our religion, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but he came to really appreciate um, all these other traditions and, and the way Alaska's people articulated their, their connection to the land, the trees and the animals, and that really resonated with them. And there was such a deep and profound sense of community that he felt, especially with his Koyakun teachers, that he became hungry for that and, and to try and infuse his own life with that level of connection. And you know, so by, if I back up just a bit to that first winter in Wainwright, it was, in some ways, it was a traumatic year because he was homesick. Uh, and at times, um, you know, the the men were were pretty ruthless in their teasing of him because he was, you know, slow to learn. But it was also a homecoming because he, as a kid, was so obsessed with the natural world that he kind of felt like a freak. Uh, and his parents indulged him, but he didn't really have a wider community that shared his obsessions. He got to Wainwright and it was just a given. Everybody there was an astute student of the natural world. And there was an intergenerational study. He just, he realized that every conversation he was involved in eventually turned back to the hunt. And that that conversation had been rolling for generations and generations. It was like a churning, never-ending, brilliant intellectual machine. And he had never even considered there were human communities uh, where the natural world were so central to the community. And then he discovered that in other dimensions, in other cultures, and he just wanted to recreate that for himself, that, uh, um, that unwavering awareness of connection, mm -hmm. um, which really opens up into a spiritual awareness. It, I kind of, I think about how maybe, like he was kind of maybe there at the height of the end of that connection for a while, because then there was a little bit more over the next few decades of a disconnect because of the kind of the, the rush of culture that was just expanding with TV and everything. But it really seems like um, that the, in the last decade, especially that maybe this new generation of native people have really picked up um, that old feeling of that connection to the land 
I mean, I, I see it through social media and through some of the organizations that I'm at where there's a real definite like being led by native people now. And it seemed like there was a little break in there. It, am I right on or did Richard notice that? Like, Well, he uh, um, in his first book, Hunters in the Northern Ice, an ethnography written about that first year in Wainwright, he he wrote in the um, end of that book of his worry that this this knowledge was going to die in the icy graves of the old men. And we went back 50 years later and he we, we sat in discussion with men that were born after Richard left and they were now captaining their own whaling boats and they shared their photos of the caribou hunt and, and shared their fishing stories. And this one man, um, Chester, who was the grandson of one of the men who taught Richard in 1964, Richard gave him this book and wrote in the inscription, I am so glad to learn that I was wrong, that this knowledge did not die in the icy graves of the old men, that uh, it's, it's alive and thriving in this generation. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it was just so rewarding to see that identity and connection um, still thriving. And when he was there, there was no snow machines. There was all dog teams. And now there's Ford pickup trucks and um, four wheelers and, and aluminum boats and Yamaha outboards. But those infrastructural changes uh, were not potent enough to really move that key cultural identity. That is that I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, I, I kind of felt growing up in Alaska that it was starting to disappear, but not now. Like I said, it really seems like it's, there's a huge resurgence and that the young people now, the, the, you know, the Gen Z kids and the younger millennial or the millennials period are just really going back to, we need to preserve our culture and, and being really great, strong spokespeople for, for their culture and that it can survive. So it, it'll be different because, you know, you have to, you know, move along in some ways, but um, that the heart of it is still there, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yep. That's great. Yeah, it is. We are going to take a short break. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media with your host, Lisa Keller. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media with your host, Lisa Keller. My guest today is Hank Linfer. He is the author of the book, Raven's Witness, The Alaska Life of Richard K. Nelson. Anyone who has listened to NPR and Alaska Public Media within the past five years or so is familiar with Richard's show, Encounters, uh, mostly focused around the outdoors in Alaska, although um, it opened up with a very distinctive didgeridoo uh, riff. And so um, that leads me to, I really wanna know about some of the time that he did spend time in Australia because there were some encounter shows about Australia. Uh, yeah, Richard said um, 
if Alaska was his wife, Australia was his mistress. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. And, uh, it really harkens back to that uh, childhood fondness for snakes. Um, and also his fondness for bird song. And that was really the foundation of my friendship with him was recording. And if you are obsessed with bird song in Alaska, you get this wonderful pulse of uh, music in the spring. It starts to fade by midsummer. And in Richard's mind, then we go into the great silence. Um, and he, life was too short to spend that many um, months away from uh, birdsong. So he found his way to Australia, which is full of snakes. Uh, the more poisonous, the better for Richard. <laughs> and nonstop birdsong. Year so round he, in Australia? No, he would just do winters. He'd come back I mean, here. Uh, um, I mean, oh, they but, have but, birds year right, round, not, not like right. here, because it is really noticeable that the bird song does stop in the summer and you don't hear yeah. very many birds. Very noticeable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's nonstop there. So he was, uh, he ended up buying a car that was filled with camping gear that he would just park at friends uh, in, in friends' houses down there. And he would just travel around, uh, camp out most of the time and wake up and record. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and the didgeridoo, he just fell in love with that music. Uh, he learned to play it. His, uh, he had like 15 of them uh, lined up in his house in Sitka. Uh, uh, Part of his musical, the piece of him that was really wanted to be a musician, right? Yep, yep. So he, um, uh, yeah, he just learned to play it and was actually very good at it. And that explains um, that intro to Encounters, which is a combination of didgeridoo. There's a little guitar in there. And there's some raven calls. So yeah, yeah. Uh, some um, some music from the key facets of his life. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so uh, so he had a so he so the Australia thing was just really his um, summer mistress, which was you know winter time down there. But most of the time he was still spending in Alaska. So he was you know up in Wainwright, and then he went into the interior and spent time with the Atlas and learning about the Khoikhan and writing there. And then he eventually made his way down to Southeast. He did. He, um, uh, he lived in Tenneke for a while and eventually moved to Sitka. Uh, and then that would have been, um, you know, early 80s and um, bought a home there and spent the, the rest of his life in that home. Mm-hmm. And what attracted him to Southeast? I mean, it is pretty fascinating to hear of somebody who's lived pretty much all around Alaska like that, spent really good quality time in just our different ecosystems. I mean, Southeast is so different than the interior and so different than, you know, Wainwright. He, uh, even after all his cherished years uh, in the interior and up on the coast, he was just never a fan of winter. Uh, was, uh, uh, well, he could have moved to Anchorage, but. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, 
Um, and he liked the ocean. He, mm -hmm. um, he actually spent some time in Hawaii. Uh, after he finished his PhD, he, his first teaching job at a university was in Hawaii. He learned to surf and was in love with surfing. So that was a big attraction to Sitka as he was one of the, the first people to climb into a wetsuit and figure out how to do the cold water surfing there. He was one of those pioneers, huh? He was. Wow. Yes, and now there's yeah. like, yeah, there's a lot of surfing in Alaska now. It's kind of a little hidden secret, I think, to people from outside, but. Well, for him, it uh, it was not hidden enough. There was a you know, there's a there, there's a, a surf shop that opened up. I don't think it's still there in Sitka, and that was a sad day for him because he used to have these surf breaks to himself. But oh yeah, you know. well that that happens to even the the Southern California surfers from the '60s and '70s. They yeah. they don't appreciate what it's become either. Yeah. <laughs> So when he went to Southeast, he had that little writing cabin on an island um, where he spent a lot of time too. And he did. Talk, yep. talk about his discovery of that, of that island and how he decided to build a little retreat for himself there. Well, as I, as I mentioned before, his time with ver in various communities um, in Alaska really stoked his hunger to see if he could forge that own intimate connection with a place. So he gave himself the homework assignment to take a couple years of his life and to learn as much as he could with the natural world as his sole teacher. So you know, not have, um, not have anything filtered through the minds of other humans. So he just committed to spending the time on this island and just observing and integrating the lessons and insights from indigenous people into his own experiences. Um, and he began journaling those experiences. So he became um, just a dedicated journaler every day. Uh, he would write. Um, often in this little teeny one room shack that he built um, tucked into the woods on this island and often when he got back home to his home in Sitka. Mm -hmm. He also had, I can't, maybe it was in Tenneke Springs where he talked about the logging that was going on that just really broke his heart. Yeah, he- That was close uh, to his cabin or? It was, it was close to his cabin and uh, he bought this cabin and it was a dream come true that they found this place. And he had no idea that the hillside right in his view shed was slated to be logged. Uh, and he just watched that clear cut grow from his window. It just started out as this little tear in the forest and just the scar just grew bigger and bigger. And it was really more than he could bear mm -hmm. um, to watch that come down and, uh, didn't he sit up there once or? Yeah, he paddled yeah. over. He, he paddled over and walked through that clear cut just mm -hmm. to let himself feel um, that transformation. And it was hard. And, and he had been up in Huslia as the pipeline was being built and just felt all the changes of this big influx of um, people coming in, um, you know, the workers on their days off, 
hunting with kind of a different ethic and a different approach than the people that had been there for generations. So he had felt both the destruction of the land itself and the destruction of cultures that, were, that was tied to um, this industrial, these industrial projects, building mm -hmm. of pipelines and clear cutting of forests. Mm -hmm. um, and for somebody that enamored with the natural world, it's, uh, it's like watching somebody you love uh, get assaulted and, mm -hmm. and, and you're not sure what you can do to intervene. Yeah, that really resonated with me when he talked about that. I mean, I think I even, I think I might've shed a tear or two because it was really heartbreaking to, you know, uh, how you talked about how he felt about that time. And, and I kind of, I mean, I saw it definitely, you know, those of us who've been here for a really long time and grew up here, have seen so many changes and, um, and it does because we're so much more connected to the natural world in Alaska. So that really, that really stuck with me. But I, I also am like, I'm not surprised that, you know, because he was a very thoughtful person about nature that that would be a really hard thing to actually watch it right outside your kitchen window, basically. Happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, you know, he had this great connection with the natural world. He he never had any children, but he did have some um, significant relationships in his life. And, he did. And I'm, and and obviously he had a sig I mean a significant relationship with people like you, but also with women in his life. And I was kind of fascinated by that. Um, the one woman, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the names, um, but he met in California, and she just kind of picked herself up and came up here and lived with him for several years. I think she had a child, actually. She did. That was yeah. um, that was Nita. Her son Ethan uh, was just a young kid when they met, and they lived together as a family. Um, you know, until Ethan graduated from high school and Sitka moved on. So. You know, he spent a long, a long, a lot of time in a father role. Um, he was also married to the natural world. Uh, at the same time, he was trying to balance that domestic life, uh, and it it was a tough balance because um, he was so deeply committed, and the work he was doing, the learning he was pursuing with the natural world, he realized it kind of had to be in solitude because he didn't really have friends or family members that had the level of focus or the depth of patience for the type of observations he was interested in. And so when he would go out with others, he would, he would find himself distracted by, oh, oh, they're ready to go, they're ready to go. And when he was by himself, he could just relax and say, nope, I'm going to be right here with this bird as long as that bird is uh, tolerant of me being close to it. Um, so, you know, the, the balance of those two interests, uh, the domestic and the wild, uh, was just an ongoing effort in his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I thought that was, I thought it was pretty profound, um, the talking about his relationships, because that, you know, occurred to me too, from a woman's perspective, how tough it would be to be with somebody like that. Um, and, but that he was also very, I mean, I mean, I would look at him as a feminist, you know, that he was 
so conscious of how he was in his relationships and worried about those people so much um, and that he wanted to be present with them when he was there, you know, um, and those relationships he had with women, they lasted for a good amount of time, right? It was, was it two or three women you talked about? I can't remember. Uh, there, there's a, a Kathy um, is featured prominently in the book. She was with uh, him in Huslia and they traveled together and bought a home together in uh, Tenneke. And I, I, I chose to write about Kathy to the degree that I did because that relationship ended uh, in a way that was traumatic for Richard. And uh, he she was- She was a surfer, right? She was a surfer. She was they, a surfer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they, That's they, coming they, back, they, yeah. Yeah, they had that in common. She was an anthropologist. Um, and that relationship ended and he was so shook and so hurt and that hurt in combination with the pain of watching the logging um he it caused him to kind of turn away from the human world for uh for a number of years and that betrayal and hurt and uh were all elements of the human world that he didn't see in the natural world uh so Part of what drove him to the island, as I'd mentioned before, was this desire to foster this intimacy with the natural world. But part of it was a turning away from uh, the ugliness he experienced and saw in the human world. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was important to his story because he went so deeply into the natural world and did, in fact, heal some of those deep personal wounds and was able to come back and more fully engaged in the human world. So there was, there, there's a story of solace and therapy and recovery that he went through uh, during those island years. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna remind everybody that this is Outdoor Explorer on KSK FM 91.1 and I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My guest today is Hank Lintfer, author of the book, Raven's Witness, The Alaska Life of Richard K. Nelson. And right now we're discussing um, Richard Nelson's personal relationships and how they impacted his work and impacted him personally. And um, so your relationship with him started, you said, about 30 years ago, right? Yeah. yeah. And you had to be a young guy at that time, right? Well, I, I, I was. I was, uh, um, uh, I was in my, my mid-20s. Um, I had just built a little house for myself in Gustavus and was, you know, finding my own way in the world. And so do you think, I mean, I must imagine that he had a huge impact on the human being you've become. Oh, absolutely. Um, he, he, um, you know, he recognized and nurtured, uh, you know, that piece of me that was drawn to the natural world. And, you know, like Richard, um, I, I was a, you know, a bit of a naturalist as a kid, um, you know, kind of a, a bit of a geek and not really fitting into conventional schooling. So we had that in common. Um, and that's what we did together. We just mm -hmm. camp. Um, we would dream up excuses to 
uh, for him to come up to my neck of the woods in Glacier Bay or, or for me to go down to Sitka. And when we did, we'd just take the other guy out and show him our favorite things. You know, he'd take me to St. Lazaria and show me the bird colonies or get me in a wetsuit and get me under a surfboard. And I would take him up and show him my favorite um, uh, fishing streams. And so our relationship and our friendship was really forged around campfires. And um, yeah, and all, you know, most of us have all had that experience that a single evening around a campfire can do more to deepen a friendship than three months of seeing each other in, in town. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a real potency to our friendship because there were just countless fires. Yeah. And he also uh, really introduced you to the sound of nature. You have this great story about first, when he first put a set of headphones on you and you guys were out recording and just the amazing breadth of sound you heard. Yeah, that, um, that happened on a trip in Glacier Bay. He was deep into his radio work and he had three radio programs that he had prepped and wanted to record, one on mountain goats, one on black bears and one on tidewater glaciers and he called me up and said yeah i'm in let's do it and i had a boat and we loaded up and went up glacier bay in the fall we had the whole place to ourselves we had a stretch of gorgeous weather uh, we were just setting up camp and he gave me this parabolic dish and these headphones and he warned me it's going to change your world and it did i walked down the beach i hit the button and i all these sounds started pouring into my world and I've described it as what it might be like to be, you know, whatever, mid forties and your eyesight's been uh, hazy your whole life. Somebody walks up, puts the glasses on, all of a sudden the world comes into focus. Mm -hmm. uh, you are not going to want to go to sleep, right? You're just going to want to keep walking and looking. And that's what these headphones did to me. That here I was in my backyard, a place I thought I knew. And I realized, oh my God, I've not been listening. Uh, and listen to all these amazing sounds. So I ended up getting one of those dishes and <laughs> we, uh, we dreamed up projects that allowed us to be together out recording um, just day after day, week after week. So in a lot of those shows then, that was you out there supporting him, right? Uh, not in a lot of them. I mean, uh, uh, certainly for those three, uh, most of those he was, um, you know, doing on his own or, you know, their other friends. I mean, he was doing them in Australia. I wasn't there. He was doing a lot mm -hmm. of them up north and I wasn't on those trips. Um, but after he quit doing the radio programs, um, you know, he, he really described the recording work is just a wonderful purity. There was, uh, there was no deadlines to produce a program. Um, he was just out there uh, doing what he loved, which is to pay attention as keenly as possible to the natural world. Mm -hmm. And um, the recording was just an excuse to do it. Mm -hmm. So in um, it, his last couple of years, he died in 2019. Um, he saw Tagrook in Wainwright in, what was it again, 2014? Yes. So, and then Tagrick, I think, died not shortly after that, right? That's true. Yep, it was. And, and it was, uh, there's a real potency sitting around the table because it was clear these two men would 
you know, not see each other again. And right. so whatever was said around the table was going to be their last words. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, so it just wow. added to the richness of that moment. Yeah. And so then that, that last five years between that last time with Tagrek and when he died, what was happening in those final five years? What was he doing? Uh, was he, he retired was, uh, or was he still working? Because he, he was uh, 77 when he died or 78? He was, yep. Um, so he was still doing recording work. He was, um, he was doing some film work uh, with um, a partner, Liz McKenzie, who's a, a Sitka-based filmmaker. So, um, you know, films about salmon and just other aspects of the natural world. We were still doing recording work. He was um, traveling to Australia still um, with his partner, Debbie Miller. Uh, so still just out there engaged um, fully with the natural world. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he, he was so excited that in his early 70s when we were camping together so much, uh, he would say, you know, I am spending as much or more time out in wild country now in my 70s than I did at any point in my life. And he was wow. so um, he was so happy to be doing that, that he mm-hmm. was fit enough to do it and driven enough to do it. And he spent more nights sleeping on the ground between Alaska and Australia than anybody I know and mm-hmm. in the 70s. That is amazing. <laughs> Yeah. It, I really feel like he died too young, even though he's 77, 78. That's a good life, a long life to live. But still, I feel like he died too young. <laughs> he had more to do. He did. He um, uh, he had a lot left to do. Um, but, you know, I, I and I miss the guy a lot, but it's but but thinking about how he went. Um, it makes me think it's 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 probably better to go out a little too early than a little too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I miss him. I wish he was still here. And I'm glad he didn't have to suffer through dementia or what mm-hmm. all the other ways that um, we, you know, become can become diminished in the last years of our lives. Mm-hmm. And he had time to say goodbye to everybody, right? He did. Yep. He, he had cancer. He lived with that. Uh, you know, he went through treatments and lived with that diagnosis for a couple of years. Um, he recovered from treatment, had some good times, and then the cancer came rushing back mm. and took him in a couple months. Wow. Um, wow. So I, I mean, you know, I've had cancer and people have always asked like, uh, you know, I think that's a hard way to go out or whatever. I'm like, in a lot of ways, sometimes it isn't because you do have time to say goodbye. Not that I'm going out <laughs> at this point. I, it was 20 years ago almost. So, but um, I'm glad he was able to, you know, be with his friends like you at the very end. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Lisa. And um, like most people, I've had friends that have died of illness and other friends that have died from sudden death. And the sudden ones, while perhaps more merciful for the dying person are really hard on the, on the survivors because there isn't that time to say goodbye. And there is so much of the grief process that happens in the last months of somebody's life where you can sit and, uh, and, and 
and grieve their loss together while they're still there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, Richard and I had a chance to do that and a chance to say some things we needed to say. And, um, and I even had a chance to record some of those conversations. Oh, well, you know, I would love to hear a last little bit if you want to share that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me today, Hank. This has been really amazing. I'm so glad that you wrote this book, Raven's Witness, The Alaska Life of Richard K. Nelson, such an important person and coming from someone who is such a close friend of his. I, I, I think it really tells a lot about a super uh, important person in the state of Alaska. So thank you so much for being with me here today. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Um, I mean, I really look at Richard as this amazing storyteller, and he he got himself in this lineage of storytellers, all these people, all these animals, and and here we are in conversation and in story um, to a lineage that is so e essential in helping us find our way forward, to be able to look back to uh, a lineage of stories that remind us of how deeply connected we are to place in each other. And in times that we're facing now, you know, just racked with such division, um, this lineage of storytelling is, is, is more essential than ever. So thank you for, uh, for, for being a storyteller and, yeah. and, and getting these stories out in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for today's show. Thanks to my guest, Hank Linfer, author of Raven's Witness, The Alaska Life of Richard K. Nelson. The book is published by Mountaineer Press and can be found in Alaska bookstores and online. Check out the Outdoor Explorer page on alaskapublic.org for pictures and links to Raven's Witness. The show was produced by Eric Bork. My name is Lisa Keller, and from all of our hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thanks for listening, and we'll see you outside. My Inupak name is Negalek, which means black brant. It's a kind of waterfowl. During my year in Wainwright, I formed a very special friendship with a man named Togaruk. We'd be sitting there in my house at the table, and all of a sudden Togaruk would lean back, and he would start to sing this little song that I fell in love with, and it went this way. Nerliegu tangurallarut and that song means the Nerlik, the black brant goose, speaks in English, but the white people cannot understand. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.